eight-year-old Danny Dutton was assigned a project for school, third-grade homework assignment to explain God. This is what he wrote. One of God's main jobs is making people. He makes them to replace the ones that die so there will be enough people to take care of things on earth. He doesn't make grown-ups, just babies. I think that's because they're smaller and easier to make, and that way he doesn't have to take valuable time to teach them to talk and walk. He can just leave that to the mothers and the fathers. God's second most important job is listening to prayers. An awful lot of this goes on since some people, like preachers and things, pray at times besides bedtime. God doesn't have time to listen to the radio or the TV because of this, because he hears everything. There must be a terrible lot of noise in his ears unless he has thought of a way to turn it off. God sees everything, hears everything, is everywhere, which keeps him pretty busy. So you shouldn't go wasting time by going over your mom and dad's head asking for something that they said you couldn't have. Atheists are people who don't believe in God. But I don't think there are any in our town, Chula Vista. At least there aren't any who come to our church. Jesus is God's son. He used to do all the hard work, like walking on water and performing miracles and trying to teach people who didn't want to learn about God. They finally got tired of him preaching, so they crucified him. But he was good and kind, like his father. And he told his father that they didn't know what they were doing to forgive them, and God said, okay. His dad appreciated everything that he had done and all his hard work, so he told him he didn't have to go on the road anymore. He could stay in heaven. So he did, and now he helps his dad by listening to prayers and seeing things which are important for God to take care of and which ones he can take care of himself without having to bother God like a secretary, only more important. You can pray anytime you want, and they're sure to help you because they work at it. They got it worked out so one of them is on duty all the time. You should always go to church on Sunday because it makes God happy. And if there's anybody you don't want to make unhappy, it's God. Don't skip church to do something like you think will be more fun, like going to the beach. It's wrong. And besides, the sun comes up, comes out at the beach until noon anyway. So if you believe in God, besides, if you don't believe in God, besides being an atheist, you'll be very lonely because your parents can't go everywhere with you. Like to camp, but God can, and it's good to know He's around when you're scared or in the dark or when you can't swim and you get thrown into the deep water by the big kids. But you shouldn't just always think of what God can do for you. I figure God put me here, and He can take me back anytime He pleases. And that's why I believe in God. I think that's really great. Now, he may not be 100% theologically correct, but I think it's good for young minds to ponder God. And that's what he's doing. He's, he's thinking about God. He even went so far as to write it down for his school project to help him come to understand. Many of you will know the name Larry King. He's another man that likes to ponder things. 
And he recently, in an interview, back about 2015, said he had been pondering death. In fact, that's what he thinks about these days most of the time. In the interview, they said that his day begins by reading the obituaries. And he ponders who will give his eulogy at his funeral. King said he hoped that Bill Clinton would give his eulogy, but then he got a very sad look because he realized he wouldn't be there to hear what Bill Clinton said about him. Larry King has had a heart attack, quintuple bypass, prostate cancer, diabetes, and seven divorces. When he was 77 years old, his TV station, CNN, dropped him like a cold turkey. And when this happened, he really became aware that there would come a day when he would die. When he learned from television of the death of Osama bin Laden, it drove him to pump up, uh, jump up on his feet and try to find another TV station to take him. But nobody would have him. I need to be on the air, he said. I need the red light. But he realized he had nowhere to go. That began to press on him more the importance of death. You know, today he takes hormone pills for human growth for them every day. And he plans on having his body frozen so that one day whatever's wrong can be healed and he can be unthawed and brought back to life. That is a report of the New York Times. The New York Times said also, Larry King said, it's nuts, but at least it gives me a shred of hope. Now, King has not mentioned God one time in his search for living forever. He, he, he never ponders the idea of God. In fact, I heard him one time on his TV show say, he was interviewing a Christian person, and he said, I wish that I could have faith like you, that I could believe in God. Today, we're going to ponder God a little bit. We're going to ponder death. We're going to ponder life. We're going to continue our sermon series today, Wisdom for the Journey, and we're going to look at another one of the writings of Solomon. You know, Solomon is responsible for three of the books in the wisdom literature. That's the five books in the middle of the Old Testament, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. And today we're going to dive into the book of Ecclesiastes and think about the wisdom that God wants to impart. Now, I want to tell you something about this book. It's kind of hard to understand. It will challenge you. It will stretch you. Even Bible scholars disagree about the meaning of it. But that's what we're going to think about today. What is the message of Ecclesiastes? And we'll dive in and we'll ponder this message. Of course, the message of the book is inspired by God, given to Solomon, and he recorded it. Now, we need to remember something. Solomon's writing in Old Testament times. Uh, he did not know Jesus. Uh, he knew, did not know that there would one day be a new covenant that hadn't been prophesied by God yet. He did not know. Uh, he did expect the Christ to come, the anointed one, but he didn't know how all that would play out. Uh, but I'm impressed by what Solomon says and how he thinks about God and life and death. So turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Now, Solomon tells us in his book, 
you have to go all the way to the last chapter, but he tells us he is a wise teacher. And he tells us, of course, we learned last week from 1 Kings chapter 4 when we were studying Proverbs that God gave him wisdom and very great insight and breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Wisdom greater than wisdom of all the people in the east and greater than all the wisdom in Egypt, wiser than anyone else. Solomon also tells us in that last chapter that he is imparting this wisdom, this knowledge to the people and that he has pondered and he has searched out and set in order many proverbs to help us. And he says the teacher, which he's referring to himself, searched and found just the right words and what he wrote is upright and true. In Ecclesiastes 12, 11, he says these words are like wise these words of the wise are like goads. They're collective sayings like firmly embedded nails. You know what a goad is? It's cow prod. It's a stick with a point on it, and the farmers would use it to move the cattle along. They would poke them in the rear end and get them to move along. He's saying these words will poke you. They'll get you to move. They'll get you to think. And he says, like firmly embedded nails, sometimes they would embed nails in the end of those prods to get the cattle moving faster. These words are sharp, and they stick, and they sometimes sting as we listen to us. And then he says these words are given by one shepherd. That's a reference to God, our God in heaven. So these are inspired words. Let's read Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and we'll begin at verse 1. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows and the sun turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow to the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing. The ear is its filling of hearing. What has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything which one can say, look, this is something new. It, is, it was here already, long ago, and it is here before our time. No one remembers the former generations. Even those yet to come will not be remembered but those by those who follow them. Man, listen to what Solomon's saying. You know, if you only skim the surface of the book, you will think Solomon is saying life is meaningless. Now, there are two words in this passage that we need to think about. First of all, he calls himself the teacher. In the Hebrew, that's the word koeleth. In the Greek, it's the word ecclesiastic. Both of those words mean preacher, the one who addresses an assembly, uh, the one who imparts wisdom, the one who brings teaching to cause people to ponder. And then there's this word meaningless. What does he mean by that? 39 times it's used in the book. 
It means futile, hollow, vain. Uh, and that's what this book exposes. The meaninglessness of life. And when you pass away, you know, he says you won't even be remembered. He said, think about the sun. It rises and it sets. And it rises and it sets. And over and over again, it's the same old, same old. And then you're going to die and nobody's going to remember you. I did a survey in the first service. How many of you can tell the name of your great-grandfather? Raise your hand. One, two, three, four, five, six. Not even a fourth of the people in here can do it. We don't remember people from the past. You are forgotten. It's amazing. Look at the wisdom Solomon is imparting. And then he says this. He applied his mind to explore all this, and he calls it the heavy burden that God has laid on man. In verse 14, he says, it's like a chasing after the wind. You ever try to grab a handful of wind? It's useless. It goes right through your fingers. You can't get it. And that is what he's saying about life. Now, you know, some biblical scholars have accused, accused Solomon of losing his faith and going astray. We're going to see that's not true. Let's press on into chapter 2. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. But my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for the people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. He goes on to say he started all these massive projects. He built houses and gardens and parks and all kinds of fruit tree groves. And he, he uh, built reservoirs to water them. He had servants. He owned more herds or flocks than anyone in Jerusalem. Uh, he amassed more silver and gold than anybody in Jerusalem. He had singers to entertain him. He had a harem. He had uh, the delights of any man's heart, he said. I became, verse 9, I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. And all my wisdom stayed with me. Verse 10, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor. This was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed, when I pondered all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. You know, think about this. Maybe the message is, it's meaningless only if you look for meaning in pleasures and worldly wisdom and power and riches. You know, he's talking here about pleasure and laughter. What does that accomplish, he asked. Or drinking wine and folly. He says, is that going to bring you any meaning in your life? Or taking on big projects. You know, sometimes you accomplish a big project. You, your ego feels good when you finish, but that's only temporary. He says he had all these servants had cattle and sheep, had great riches, singers to entertain him. He had a harem of 700 wives and 300 concubines. Now, God is not condoning that here in the Scripture. 
That was the way of kings in that day. God brought people far beyond that. Uh, in the New Testament, it's made clear. One husband, one wife. I could never handle 700. <laughs> never, ever. I have a hard time just keeping up with the one I have. She's pretty good, though. There were no pleasures, he said, that he didn't experience. Yet when he surveyed, when he pondered, he found it all meaningless. He said, that, that stuff does not satisfy me. You know, if you read on ahead, Ecclesiastes 2.12, look to wisdom, it didn't satisfy. Ecclesiastes 2.17, work didn't satisfy. He said, I hated my life because of work. It was meaningless. Ecclesiastes 4, he looked around, all he saw was oppressed people and people oppressing them. And he said, you know what? Neither one of them have any comfort. They don't have a comforter, he said. That's his way of saying they didn't know God. Chapter 5 and 6, he said, Wealth didn't fill my desires. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied. Ecclesiastes 7, he indicates that worldly wisdom won't satisfy. And Solomon, uh, Solomon says this in chapter 7, verse 29. This only have I found. God created mankind upright, but they have gone in search of many schemes. You know, everybody is looking for that magic bullet. What's going to make me happy? What's going to satisfy me? What, what can I find? I read about Mel Gibson. You know Mel Gibson, the actor? He starred in several great movies like uh, Lethal Weapon and Mad Max and Braveheart. He did an interview with Peggy Noonan. Peggy Noonan was... Uh, she uh, writes for the Wall Street Journal. She also write, uh, uh, is a contributor for several TV news shows. She was a speechwriter for President Ronald Reagan back in the 80s. And she interviewed him and published this interview in the Wall Street Journal, or in Reader's Digest. And Mel Gibson said at the height of his stardom, he realized he was empty. He had achieved everything he had over, ever hoped for. He had, but he had no sense of purpose. Gibson said he felt like he was drowning in fame and wealth and drink and despair. You know, he was at one time named People Magazine's sexiest man alive, and yet he said his life was empty. It knocked him to his knees, he said. And he told Peggy Newman, at that time in my life, I was really searching. I was asking all those Shakespearean questions What's on the other side? Why am I here? Uh, I might have looked like I'm living the high life, he said, making movies and jetting all over the world, but happiness resides within, and I did not have that happiness. He said he was spiritually bankrupt. And when that happens, he said it's like a spiritual cancer afflicts you. It starts to eat away, and you've got to do something. It's going to take you, he said. I simply had to draw a line in the sand. Maybe that's kind of what, what Solomon's talking about. You look at all this stuff in the world, and you keep chasing after that magic bullet that's going to make you right. And you can have everything, Solomon says. Mel Gibson confirmed that. You can have the best life materialistically, but something can still be missing. No satisfaction. There's a recurring theme that Solomon puts in this book. I want to read you some verses now. Chapter 2, verse 24. 
person can do nothing better than to eat and to drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. Chapter 3, verse 12. I know that there's nothing better for people than to be happy and do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This, he says, is a gift of God. Chapter 5, verse 18. This is what I observe to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat and to drink and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Chapter 8, verse 15. So I commend the enjoyment of life because there is nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and to drink and be glad. The joy will accompany them and toil all their days of their life God has given them under the sun. And in 9-7, Go and eat your food with gladness. Drink your wine with a joyful heart. For God has already approved what you do. You understand what Solomon is weaving into these pages. This idea that God has given us something. The basics of life. You know, we need food and drink to sustain ourselves. Now, he's talk, talking about drinking wine till you get drunk. Most of the wine that they drank back in that day was not even fermented. It was just like kind of like grape juice. But he's telling us meaning is going to come when we work to sustain our lives, when we give back, when we contribute to the community, when we do it not just for ourselves but for others. And then we'll find satisfaction in our lives, even as we toil hard. This is where the satisfaction of life starts, to do something productive, to advance the cause of society, to do your part. And to do it because we know that that's what God created us to do. You go all the way back to the book of Genesis chapter 2, and there in verse 15 it says, He put Adam and Eve in the garden to work the ground and take care of it. You know, we've we got to realize God gave us this. And then we enjoy the fruits of our labor, and we'll be satisfied to eat good food and to drink and, and enjoy those things that we get because of our hard work. And we have to recognize that it all comes by the hand of God. We look to Him. We trust Him to provide for us and give us abundance. And He will when we do our part. Deuteronomy 8.18 says, The Lord gives you the ability to produce wealth. So think about this. With deep contemplation of Solomon's message, you'll discover that real meaning comes from knowing the sovereign, good, and just God behind it all. Haddon Robinson, famous preacher and author, says, when he says meaningless, he does not mean it's not worth living. He means try as you will, you can never figure it out. You know, for sure you'll never understand this life or death without knowledge of God. And always keep in mind that He's sovereign. That means He's in charge. He's ultimately the boss. And He can either cause everything... Or if he doesn't cause it, he at least allows it to happen because he could stop some things. And he allows us free will. And we can all do good or we can all do evil in this life. We can all do some things well 
And we can all make mistakes in this life. And we can all find good times and safe times. And we all will sometimes have accidents. Bad is not caused by God. It's caused by people who make mistakes. Or it's caused by people who follow Satan's lead to lead them away from God. It's a result of following the, long, the wrong path. And people... Uh, leading people astray. And the result is following the wrong path is bad things happen. It leads people astray. And sometimes it causes bad things to happen, even to good people. But sometimes God blesses people. And he gives them abundance, great wealth. And sometimes he doesn't bless people with great wealth. He knows why. And we have to trust that he's sovereign in what he does. In Ecclesiastes 7.14, he says, When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. You understand? No matter whether it's good or bad, you still have to trust that there's a sovereign God in charge. And when we trust that he's in charge, things will go better. He's also a good God. Listen to these scriptures. Ecclesiastes 3.12 Finding satisfaction is a gift of God. That's good, satisfaction. James 1.17 says Every good and perfect gift comes from above. Ecclesiastes 5.19 and 20 says Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. And he says this, they seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. That gladness comes because we believe God is the one providing. And so we don't worry about life as much. You know, life can seem mundane. You know, the, uh, the days of the week, you think about it, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. What comes next? Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. You know, the problem with life is it's so daily. Over and over again, the weeks roll by. You know, my, my good friend sitting back there, Jim West, says when he retired, he discovered he only had two days in his week. Six Saturdays and one Sunday. You know, it's just the same old, same old every day. And Sundays roll around with amazing regularity. Tell me, I know, because you expect me to stand up here and, and talk for 30 minutes. Some of you wish I'd talk less. But that's life. It's regular. It just, it just rolls around. But I want you to think for a minute, that's the way God created it to be. And we really ought to reflect on that. What's better than a, than a good night's sleep and to get up and have a good breakfast and then go to a job and, and be productive in life? And then you get to eat lunch, take a break, and then you go back to work and do some more and finish what you didn't get done in the morning. And then you get to drive home. How great is that drive home? You listen to a CD, you listen to my sermon, you listen to... Uh, you listen to something, or you just have peace and quiet. You get home and have a good dinner with your family or, or a friend or somebody. You watch some TV. You go to bed. You ask that same old question, you get that same old answer. You go to sleep, and then you get up in the morning, and life just goes round and round and round. But that's a gift of God. 
It's regular. God has given us this seven-day cycle, this, this way to sleep and refresh, and this need to eat and, and, and nourish ourselves. You know, I found that most people believe in God. Very few atheists around that don't believe in God. Now, not everybody believes in the God of the Bible or follows even those that do, don't always follow the way of the Bible. But I want you to listen to what Solomon, probably the most famous part of his book of Ecclesiastes is found in chapter 3. There's a time for everything, a season for every activity under the sun, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden that God has laid on the human race. Verse 11, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Now you've got to think about that. He's saying there's all this stuff, this regular stuff that's going to happen in this world, but God has used all of it. He's made it all beautiful in its time. He goes on to say he has said eternity in the human heart. Eternity. We all have this longing to live forever, to go beyond our days here on earth. Who can fathom what God has done from beginning to end? I know that there's nothing better for people than to be happy, to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so people will fear Him. Will fear Him. Think about that for a minute. God is just, and we should fear Him. He's good. He's a good God. He's sovereign, but He's also just. And He's going to bring everything into judgment one day. And that fear causes us to realize that one day we're going to be judged for how we've lived our life. Have we lived our life chasing after the wind? Or have we said in our heart eternity and decided that this God is real and He provides all this stuff for us and that by seeking Him and pleasing Him, we're going to have the best life we could possibly have. We learned last week from, from uh, Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. That kind of knowledge and wisdom is God's knowledge and wisdom. And that's what's going to keep us in check and help us enjoy that when we eat and when we drink and find satisfaction in our toil, that we will appreciate the God who gave those things to us. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 and 14, last two verses of the book. Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the duty of mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including the hidden things, whether it is good 
or evil. And here's our connection. The journey is not meaningless if you put God first and strive to follow his ways, for he will one day judge your life. That's Solomon's message. God created us. He created us in his image. He put us on this earth to, to live the way he wants us to live. Now, he doesn't force us. He gives us free will, but he gives us that choice. And we often mess up, and sometimes we even sin. And when we sin, it separates us from God. God made a provision even for that. He sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to dawn the cross to pay the penalty for our sin and to restore us back to, to him through faith in his son, Jesus. You know, I told you about Mel Gibson and how he had all this stuff and, and his life was, was empty. It had no meaning. And then he started to read the Bible. And he got in and began to read the, the Gospels and the New Testament. You know what he discovered? Jesus died for his sin, which was much sin. And he said, I gave my life to him, and he turned me around and gave me a meaningful life. He then went on to write, produce, and direct the movie, The Passion of the Christ. You've got to trust God. Ecclesiastes 7.14 says, Once again, when times are good, be happy. When times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. So trust in Him. He's there with you. Matthew Brown had a son, a very smart son. He was eight years old. He was laying on a couch. His son, Matthew walked into the living room. His son said, Dad, what does ponder mean? He thought, oh no, this is going to lead to a bunch of more questions. I better get this right because he'll find out eventually. And that's one of those words that I don't know exactly what it means, but I think I can explain it. I wish I had a dictionary, but I don't. So he said, well, son, ponder means to think deeply about something, to uh, reflect on it, to uh, consider it. And he said, oh, okay, Dad, I think I'll get the point to ponder and his dad said, you know, like pondering the meaning of life. And then he thought, oh man, I've opened up another whole can of worms because now we're going to have the meaning of life discussion and I'm not going to get that right and try as hard as I will. I'll be here for hours talking to my son and I won't get anywhere. And finally, I'll, have, I'll just have to say, son, I don't understand. But his son looked up and said, no, dad, we don't have to think about that. I understand the meaning of life. It simply means to love God. I don't need to preach anymore after that. Let's pray. Father, thank you as we've pondered the meaning of God, the meaning of life, the meaning of death, the meaning of work, the meaning of eating, and all these things that goes on in our life. Because, Lord, if we look to them to fill our hearts, we're going to miss the boat. But, Father, help us to realize if we give you all the glory and credit for those things, and if we seek to do those things to honor and glorify you, then we are going to find the satisfaction. We won't be chasing after the wind. We'll be chasing after you and your spirit, which will fill us to the hill with all the love and the meaning that we need. I pray today, Father, that you help us to get the message of Ecclesiastes so we won't be chasing 
after the wind. In Jesus' strong name I pray, amen.